Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we are wrapping up Wolf's super political novella, Hour of Trust, with a discussion. And this story has a lot of literary allusions. It's extremely self-referential, and it's probably Wolf's most ambitious political critique that we've read so far. So we've got a lot to do in this episode. Yeah, we sure do. And I think we'll get started right where the story ends with Cleo's spontaneous combustion. And maybe we can just talk about Cleo for a little bit. This spontaneous combustion that takes place is around a sexual act, and we get a sense that the first one that takes place in the story is also around a sort of sexual assault. So we have these two sheets of flame imageries and this one bomb imagery, which is what happens to the male when he explodes. This is a very complicated imagery to me because Wolf isn't using the same imagery to describe what's happening with the women and what's happening with the men. So I have a few questions about this that I'd like to ask to kick off our discussion. I don't think much of our discussion is going to leave us <laughs> feeling very good with this, but uh, I think we'll do the best we can. Do you think that this act here uh, at the end of the story, Peter's coming on to Cleo while she's trying to explain good business practices and then succumbing to him and they have sex? Uh, do you think that because of the way the story ends, that this act is unwanted on Cleo's part or even Peter's part? Or is Cleo in somehow a position where she can't turn down a sexual advance from some of the people in the company? Is she in league with the protesters? Or as we get in the opening paragraph of the story where we're told that Cleo's going to light the candles, is this just a metaphor for Uh, what is happening at the end of the story and that it's ordered by Lewis, that this lighting of the candles is something Lewis orders and that Lewis needs somebody to die at this party so that a new crisis emerges that can help the people there forget about the failed attack on Detroit. What is happening here, Glenn? What are your thoughts? There's so much to consider with the final image of this story. Yeah, let me try to tackle as much of that as I can. But the first thing I'll say is that I don't think that the explosions that are happening are technological. I do not think that these are suicide bombs that they are wearing and activating themselves or that there's something that are being activated by uh, another person. I don't think there's like exploding molecules in their bloodstreams or, or anything like that. I do not think that this is technological and I don't know that it's even directed. My sense of these explosions is that this is numinous. This is mystical. It's a supernatural thing that is happening. And there's two things that I want to say about this. One is that part of the reason that this woman is assaulted and has her shirt removed in the battle in Detroit is so that we, the reader, know she's not wearing a suicide vest under there. This is one of the things that Wolf is doing with that detail is showing us that this is not technological. The other thing that we see in the battle in Detroit is we get three deaths narrated to us Two of them are these explosions, and one of them is a character being shot to death. The one character who is shot to death, the character who doesn't explode, is the only person who doesn't give any sign of being a Christian. The two people who explode are Christians. The woman has said so when we've met her, and the bald man, before he explodes as well, is reciting the Lord's Prayer. Now, we don't see that from Cleo. We don't see anything explicitly Christian from Cleo. So it's not clear that maybe that's 100% what is going on here, though she is named the muse of history. So she may be something else entirely. Uh, One thing I will point out is that the images of muses in ancient Greek and Roman culture become part of the images of the way that we draw angels. Uh, It's just the exact same form. This is an explicit connection. And in fact, when you work in late antique art history, it's hard to know sometimes if the image you're looking at is the muse or the goddess victory or an angel. So that might be something that's at play here uh, for Wolf as well. I 100% agree with your analysis of the bombers here or the people who are exploding it's clear that the vast majority of these people who give their body to peace, as it's described by uh, the newscaster, are signing up at religious centers. And the imagery of self-immolation, uh, I read, uh, you know, I think it might have been in Wikipedia or something like that. There were over 100 references to self-immolation in the New York Times between like 1967 and 1972 as part of this protest movement, that this is also a part of it. 
that this is part of protest imagery. I think Wolf wants to do something else with that image that this is a means maybe by which these people are able to protect themselves from this. You know, maybe Wolf thinks it's a an evil influence, this new form of capitalism that is taking place. And, and I'm going to read a, a bit of an article in a few minutes that talks about what is happening around 1970 with the winding down of American economic dominance in the world, that to strive for that at all ends is maybe an evil and not a good, and that these people are good and they are burning up maybe because they can't live in the world anymore. I do want to dig a little deeper here and say, one, do you think Cleo is part of the resistance movement? Is this a sign that she's a part of the resistance movement? Or is this some sort of moment that happens to people when they have lost faith in the you know, economic system? So I don't think that she's some kind of agent of the resistance who's been planted here or someone who has decided to join the resistance and keep her position at the company headquarters or something like that. I don't think that at all. I don't think this is directed by these people. I think that these people are being filled up with the holy power of God and that they are martyrs. That's that's you know it's a word that you used. It's not a word that Wolf uses, but I think it's what Wolf wants us to be thinking here. These people who have volunteered to donate their bodies to peace, they're being martyrs. They're volunteering for martyrdom. And I think that also is what happens to Cleo here at the end. And what we get in that scene is her saying out loud, right, that her sympathies are actually probably with the counterculture. Peters's are too. And in fact, I think what we're supposed to see here is the different ways they react to that, that now they're having this conversation, they're helping each other come to this conclusion, and she embraces it. And he denies it. And he doubly denies it. He denies it by saying he wants to keep going on with his position, but then also denies it by treating her the way that these businessmen treat attractive young women in their employ as toys, as things that have to do their bidding, as people who have to have sex with them, whether they want to or not. And I I know you have a reading that they actually have sex. I don't think that's right. I think that she explodes before they have sex, and I think that that's important. I think that that's part of the explosion here is that she's being protected from essentially being raped by her fellow employee. That's fascinating. I, I, that's not my reading at all. And I, you know, I don't want to spend too much time on it. I'll just read the last section and then maybe we can leave it to the members of the forum. The, the, the last bit here says Peters had slipped his hand between her thighs and she looked down at it and said, that took you a long time. He said, I didn't want to interrupt you. So we know he's been making moves and like he's not even really listening to her talk because he's drunk. And it's not even that he's treating her like the way men treat women in these companies, which I think is definitely happening. He's treating her like she's a prostitute at the party. And that's what she's there for. He just needs to get through her conversation and then he can make his move. But the real issue here is after he says, I didn't want to interrupt you. It's a paragraph break. And then the line and later. We still might do it. He took her hand in the dark. If we can change things just a little before it's too late, we still might do it. The girl's body blossomed fire that engulfed and scarred and clung. Naked and burning, he reached the center of the room beyond. But there he fell on the Moroccan carpet that covered the red tiles. And though they poured tepid water on him from the spent ice buckets, he died there. So I read that as that line break as and later as kind of like the classic Hollywood signaling of like the fade out and fade in. And then the fact that he's naked, it could be because his clothes burn off, but I think he's already naked. That's my reading. Yeah, you know, and I can I can buy that reading for sure. But I think that in either case, the reason that she is exploding is about the fact that she has come to the right side of this moral dispute and he has not. And and it's this line that he says here, right, that, that triggers that where he really just doubles down on it. So I don't think that, you know, to answer your original question, I don't think she's some kind of agent who is willing this to happen. I really love your reading here at the end of the story and what's going on with these uh, spontaneous combustions. I love what Wolf is doing here with the protest imagery of Vietnam. This is a really, really complicated bit of the story and that somehow coming to the right conclusion 
spares you from continuing to live under this sort of hellacious world. And maybe this is a story of people uh, being even raptured in some sense. So that's nowhere in the story. I think your reading would go along with this sort of apocalyptic vision of America. But there's a lot more going on in the story than just this. To me, this, this story doesn't actually really feel all that radical because I think we're living through some of the consequences of the sort of management theory that Wolf is criticizing. And I'd like to start our discussion with a question around what is going on with the Harvard Business School, with managers and, and the role that educated managers play in this story. I want to start by giving some context around the question, or at least what I think is relevant context, and then we can dig into what is happening. This story, as we've said, was published in 1973, right at the start of the economic crisis of the 1970s that led to stagflation, which was high inflation and high unemployment taking place at the same time. What I read a few articles about what was going on here uh, with business management theory because it seems too specific to like not be about something. This is not like a general problem unless there's like big things being talked about around this in the media and the newspapers. But uh, one article I read, which was really good in, in the Harvard Business Review, is called How Business Schools Lost Their Way. And this tracks some of the history of business schools. And I just want to read a paragraph here from it to give a sense of what's going on. The writer of the article says this, beginning in the early 1970s, the United States entered an extended period of economic distress for which critics blamed corporate managers who were characterized in the media as unaccountable plutocrats. Out of this economic turmoil emerged a new view of American capitalism. So-called agency theory developed and promoted by leading academics at American business schools recast management as an agent of shareholders and a servant to share price. Other stakeholders, such as workers and communities, no longer mattered. One of the things that helped kick off agency theory was Milton Friedman, who famously argued for this in uh, the New York Times Magazine in 1970 in a famous article called The Social Responsibility of Business to Increase Its Profits. And in this article, which I don't really want to read too much from, everybody should read it because it explains a lot about how we got to where we are with the flood of investment capital in our businesses and also Wolf's critique of the role of a manager is solely to maximize profits. But in this article, Friedman argues that the primary duty of a manager or an executive is to increase the value of the company for the primary benefit of shareholders. Anything else, he argues, is basically tantamount to socialism. And he makes points about this. I think he makes a lot of slippery slope arguments, but these are the points he's making, that somehow a business doing something good for its employees and for its community is what socialists are doing. He argues against businesses having any responsibilities. And the whole article basically engages in a semantics debate about what a business is, what a corporation is, what social responsibilities are, that remind me of the conversation about death and the afterlife that the Harrys engage with. The effect of Friedman's arguments ultimately is that there is something separate between being a business owner or a business operator or a member of a business and being a human being involved in a community-based endeavor with other human beings, that it is a wholly separate thing. It's basically that a, that a business person is not the same as a person. This article includes cynical lines like, of course, in practice, the doctrine of social responsibility is frequently a cloak for actions that are justified on other grounds rather than a reason for those actions. So he's saying that business people who engage in social responsibility are doing it only for the benefit of their business, and that's dishonest, and so they shouldn't be done at all. Friedman goes so far as to say that businessmen who use this cloak actually harm the foundations of a free society. And Friedman goes on to say that he doesn't really want the government to interfere too much in people's lives or demand that businesses act in a certain way. And we end up with this crazy arguments that are really awful. I don't, I don't like them. I'm not an economist, but I have real problems with some of the things Friedman is arguing here. And we're not doing a podcast critiquing this article. But I think Wolf read it and this story reads as a critique of this article. I can't help but to think that Wolf has this on his mind as he's writing the story. I think he could be imagining a world where business people run everything. And I wonder, Glenn, if you know some of this context under which the story was written, these are real things that were happening, help 
to elucidate this bit about the business school and the effectiveness of managers and the gap between management and the laborer? In other words, Glenn, what kind of argument do you think Wolf is making here? Well, I think there are maybe two components to what Wolf is criticizing here. But just to be clear at the start, the business people are the bad guys in this story. And that is as clear as it could possibly be in this story. And there are the two ways that Wolf is engaging in criticism of these corporate elites is to criticize what their corporations are up to to begin with and things like their relationships with their their communities and relationships with the other businesses that they interact with or even the other the countries the the governments that they interact with but he's also criticizing the way that corporations are managed internally as well this is kind of a maybe a, a one two punch of his criticism here and especially at the end right when we get Clio talking about how these people have no idea how their businesses actually operate. What they know are spreadsheets and things that we might call economics or or finance, but they don't know anything about what the actual labor that the company is doing. They don't know anything about lumber or, or trees. These companies don't know anything about any type of farming or agricultural work. They don't actually know anything about the production of metal objects or the mining of metal out of the ground to go into the making of metal objects and and so on. They just know spreadsheets. And one of the questions that rises out of that critique immediately is, then what are the spreadsheet people for? Right. What are what value are they actually adding to the world? And it's pretty clear that they're not adding value to the world. They're certainly not adding value to employees. They're not adding value to their communities because they're totally unconcerned with those. In fact, as you've just said, they've recently all just been told to stop trying to do that by one of the most influential economic and business thinkers in, in the world at the time. So the only thing that they are doing is helping out the plutocracy, helping out the the shareholders who are the, the owner class. And so if these people have no social function, and in fact their function is to help keep most people oppressed by the owner class, isn't there maybe something better that those people could be doing? And also wouldn't businesses themselves just be better if they're actually focused on the thing that they do and the people who do the thing and the place where they do the thing to actually be a part of their community, to treat employees like a part of a community, to treat the business itself as a type of community. So I think those are the two ways that Wolf is being critical here. I don't think in any way that Wolf is criticizing free enterprise or people making things, doing things and selling that product to other people. That's We know that's not something that Wolf is critical of. And he's not necessarily here advocating socialist political policies either, though we have seen him advocate universal basic income before. That sort of thing is not here at all. He's just wondering if a corporation is really the best model of a business and every angle he's looking at it from in this story, the answer is no, that these corporations are good for almost nobody. Right. We know, as we as we brought up in our recap episodes, that Wolf is primarily concerned with freedom. And I, I don't think he is arguing here that the free market economy is bad, as you said, or that socialism is good. Rather, he's saying, how can people be free? How can a laborer of a wood pulp manufacturing farm be free to do their work in a, in a way that they don't have to worry about their job because somebody is making different market inroads at, at a level that's 14 people above them, and all they're worried about is caring for the land. Uh, this picture of the f- the tree farm is really beautiful because it's really a sustainable business. It's a business that they replant the trees, they cut down, they only do a little portion of it every year. And this is good for the land. It's good for the people who do the work. Uh, it's good for the people who need wood pulp. But increasingly, it's good for a whole new class of people who only manage on behalf of the shareholders to increase profitability. And what you end up with is you're going to end up with a farm that can't produce pine trees because they had to sell them all, or they overproduced, or an overfished lake, or a polluted river. All of these outcomes of these business decisions are ultimately destructive because they're so far removed from the locale and the people who are connected to that place, who care about that place where the business is being done. If we've gotten to the point in our discourse where the ideas are socialist, that we should 
care for the people and places that we derive our wealth from, then I, you know, I don't, I don't know what kind of conversation we're having. All, all systems require balance and limits in order to benefit the majority of people. Ultimately, I think Wolf is looking at these changes and seeing that they are part of a pretty big change in culture, a change in, in values, right? In this ability of these corporations or, or just big business institutions to ignore the people who are really affected by what they do and even the people who actually do the thing that generates their profits to begin with, that that is part of a, a real values change, right? They're, they're ignoring of these people. And we can see Wolf making fun of that or pointing to that in some other places here. I mean, for one thing, this comparison between Peters and Treadgold is something we're meant to be making throughout the story. They are the same age. They both are working for big corporations, but they have very different characteristics, and especially they have very different backgrounds. And it's important that Peters has gone to the Harvard School of Business but doesn't actually know anything about anything and is seemingly not any good at business, doesn't really know anything about business at all. Whereas the one person we see in this story who is actually good at managing a business, actually running something for profit, making money off of it, is a guy who did not go to an elite school, but also didn't study business at his school. He was a journalist. He's a writer, right? This might be Wolf patting himself on the back, on the back a little bit there, right? As being that the writer is the only good business person that we actually see in this entire story. And I think Wolf here is poking fun at the idea that business is something you can go to school for. And this is kind of a, a new idea at this time. The Harvard Business School has been around for quite a while at the point of Wolf writing this story. But majoring in business was not something you really did as an undergrad at this point, because even if you were going to go work for a company like General Motors or General Electric or, or Northrop Grumman or something like that, whoever it might be, you were going to learn that business when you got there. You were going to learn their techniques for using spreadsheets and doing their businessy stuff. That It wasn't something you went to college to learn how to do. And you really went to college to learn the types of critical thinking, communicating, and problem-solving skills that would be of benefit to a business by majoring in something that's a real discipline of, of some sort, whether it's you know, a humanities like philosophy or history or literature, which are our backgrounds, or a science like physics or engineering, as Wolf studied, right? That those are actual skills and sets of knowledge that make a person valuable to a community and also valuable to any kind of industry or any kind of endeavor, really. But Wolf has seen the future here where most students at American universities now major in business. Half my freshmen are always majoring in business. And when I ask them that what they are learning, they can't really tell me anything that they're learning in any of their classes. When I ask them what they want to do for a living, they can't really articulate that either. They just know they would like to make a living. That's really all that they know. And they've been convinced that this is the, the, the way to do it. And frankly, it is because really what the business college is for at most universities that I have worked at is a recruiting station for corporations. And that's all that's all it really is. And I think Wolf has seen this and is trying maybe in some way to poke enough fun at it to get people to take a step back and say, is that really what we should be doing with our universities? Unfortunately, Wolf did not win this battle. No, and it is too bad that he didn't. Well, I, I think we've said enough about our views of business in the, in the 20th century and the pitfalls of purely orienting your identity around doing business instead of being a part of the world and the community that you belong to. But I, I'd like to take this conversation in the direction of what is happening in America, what we see in the America that is presented to us in the story. We have corporations who fund the government, an elite managerial class who have separated themselves from the harm of their actions, but still hope to profit, at least in the short run, from the unrest, at least until the end of their lives. Uh, and we have the Harrys, who are sort of these hippie stand-ins, these revolutionaries, who are willing to die, in, in many cases, to maintain their own freedom and their values. And all the while, we have a new militia in the background that is training and that is forming and learning how to fight. And uh, as I said, we're also getting this imagery of the Vietnam protest. So what do you think Wolf is trying to say about the America in this story, the America of the future, the America of the 90s? 
you teased this in, in one of the recap episodes that this story has all of the hallmarks of a cyberpunk story, which is the main innovation of science fiction literature of the the early 1990s, I suppose, maybe really the late 1980s, but is in full swing in the 1990s. That is defined by advances in digital technology, for sure. That's really kind of the cover image of what cyberpunk is. And there actually is some of that in this story. But what cyberpunk is really about is it envisions a dystopian future in which corporations have taken over the functioning of government, or at least have superseded government as the most important institution in the world, right? It's a a world in which government isn't really that important anymore. And what matters is what company you work for, that everyone in in a cyberpunk dystopia is a serf, right? That it's the return really of the high medieval economy in which businesses are also actually the government, right? In the Middle Ages and the high Middle Ages, this is to say that lords, the agricultural landlords, right? This is the big business of the high Middle Ages. Not only are the employers of the region, they also just outright have the powers of government. They have the power to carry out justice. They have the power in some ways also even to collect taxes. They have the right to wage war and use violence in all sorts of ways. And cyberpunk is envisioning that happening again. But instead of it being landlords in an agricultural society, it's corporations in a global post-industrialist digital economy. And that is what Wolf is imagining here as well, where this facade has fallen away and it's just corporations who are fighting a war so that they can be in charge. And they are fighting it against people who have said, we don't want that. What we actually want is old fashioned government back and we're going to create that. The use of the word militia, I think, is super important, right? It's a citizen militia, whereas the corporations are using their serfs and uh, mercenary labor and, in fact, also are doing this by getting money from other countries, right? They're going to be subjecting America to being indebted to foreign powers, which is something we have seen Wolf rail against a lot in Operation Ares, for example. And I think that ties into Wolf's concern about these references to nationality or nationalism in this story. The major that replaces the colonel who probably died in in some conflict here uh, is described as having Indian features, and that makes his suit look good. Uh, Peters could be confused for being Jewish, though he's not. Peters doesn't know the nationality of Salamos, The people who stand up and introduce themselves do it by saying their business affiliation and the nation they're a part of. And we have a brief snippet of conversation in this story, one that gets cut short, about how the supporters of a nation that is at war don't really need to support one political party or another or one form of government or another, but only need to have a sense of nationalism. So I wonder if you could tie that question of what Wolf is doing with nationalism with this cyberpunk dystopic corporate vision of the future of the 90s. And I just do have to say one thing, one other hallmark of uh, cyberpunk that Wolf has here in this story is hacking the feed, which is pretty great. <laughs> yes, that's true, right? And it's it's uh, it's weird looking people with uh, all sorts of with piercings and facial hair and marks, uh, you know, makeup on their on their faces. Yeah, absolutely. He's predicted all of this. He's a, he's ahead of the game here. But I think your question about identity in this world, right, is that there's a breakdown of the hierarchy of identities that Wolf has grown up with, right, where for him, his principal identity is as an American. And it really is for us, too. We are still living in, in a world where that is true. But Wolf is envisioning here a world in which that is not true, where being an American is still an identity that you have, or being British or Italian or German, those are still identities that you have, but they are less consequential than your corporate affiliation. As you say, he uses the way that he is presenting the characters in this story to demonstrate that, but also the the fact that Treadgold is English and works in Portugal as this brothel runner and is employed by an English newspaper, but that which is actually owned by an American company. So ultimately, his political identity or his national identity is not in sync with his corporate identity. And he seems to be largely comfortable with that. And the other thing that we see, right, is that Peter's 
assumes that Treadgold would be willing to go to America to help fight the Harrys because this is not a national question. It's not a question about nations. This is a question about being a member of the owner class, being affiliated with a corporation, right? It's a a class consciousness rather than a a national consciousness. Right. And I think Wolf here is trying to complicate some points about why wars are fought based on you know national identity or national sovereignty here and try to point to though it's very hard to predict or maybe understand it's hard for me to understand the type of mess that an american corporation could get in if it were really governing and was borrowing from other non-governmental entities in order to fund its own private war. That to me is kind of a really terrifying idea that that a corporation would leverage debt from a foreign power in order to win a war in a short term in order to produce more war goods for this other country or corporation that is based outside of the United States and what happens if they go to war with them at what point how is there how do you determine any hierarchy of well-being of how you determine what citizens you're going to protect and why and on what grounds when people can switch jobs when corporations can go out of business when all of these things can happen in a world without governments but to only run by corporate powers who are leveraging total debt against one another. Not so different from the way our nations operate today, but at least there's a, a, a still a sense of national sovereignty in many cases or reasons why there we have citizens instead of employees of a country. Well, the connection with war here really, of course, is all wrapped up in Vietnam, as you, you've pointed out. And I get the impression here that Wolf is coming down pretty hard on the idea the war in Vietnam is not an American war. It's not a war that America is waging. It's a war that the military industrial complex is waging using young American men to fight that war. But it's being waged on behalf of corporations who are who are profiting from this war, right? They are war profiteers. This really is war is a racket. And I want to make a connection back to another story of Wolf's, one that we we actually just covered it, how how I lost the Second World War. Because the phrase military industrial complex is a, a phrase that's coined by Eisenhower. He actually calls it the military industrial congressional complex. But this is President Eisenhower says this. It's one of his last things. It's it's a warning that he's actually giving to the American people as he is not seeking re-election. And we've just seen in How I Lost the Second World War, Eisenhower is a character in that story. Eisenhower is the hero of that story. So I think we can see here that, that Wolf is on Eisenhower's side here, right? He think he has a great admiration for President Eisenhower, and he buys into this warning, right? He is seeing almost 20 years on now, he is seeing how that warning has come true, how the things that Eisenhower has predicted have come to pass. And it's horrifying, right, for Wolf to be seeing these young American men, these American soldiers, of which he used to be one, right, seeing them have to go off to fight this war that is about lining the pockets of people who went to the Harvard School of Business. I think that's an excellent point. And, you know, I think now we can try to maybe dig into Wolf's mind a little bit as he's writing this story. You know, I wonder, Glenn, if you think Wolf is consciously trying to draw a line between capitalism and the decline a little bit of the war machine in the late 60s and early 70s that's a piece of uh the the economic recession that's about to hit um a a line between capitalism and america's ability to uh, be a a, an economic superpower you know since world war one and vietnam war all this stuff is going on in this story the changes in business management theory that are resulting in asking people to divorce their identity from their neighbors, their social groups, their communities, and putting themselves in servitude to the shareholder, which puts everybody beneath them in a similar servitude and this war. Do you think Wolf is consciously drawing a line here? I think we know the answer to that. Or do you think these all these issues are just taking place at the same time and he's putting them into a story? He's trying to figure a way to work through all of this stuff and putting them all together in a story. 
I absolutely think that this is the most contemporary of Wolf's stories, right? This is a mode of storytelling. We're going to see him go away from completely but by the time he finishes the book of the new son. But this is even really more contemporary than Operation Ares was, which was up to this point, I think, the most political work that we had from Wolf. But this is about the world that Wolf's readers can see outside their windows, see on their TV screens, experience on their way to work in America in 1973. And he's wanting people to think about that world. Is this the world that we really want to live in? What might be some of the consequences of choices that we're making right now, and especially maybe of passivity on our part right now of just allowing these greater forces to play out without an intervention, right? And I think that's a big part of the the conversation between Peters and Treadgold about can we change something, right? That's a call to action. Wolf is saying we have to do that. We as citizens have to do that because the owner class is not ever going to change the rules of a game that they always win. But there's also a criticism here or a concern that Wolf has that we, we haven't really touched on too much yet, which is this idea that since the Korean War, the American military isn't really much of a military. It's just another one of these corporations. Its job is simply to use tax money to buy equipment and so on, munitions and, and such from the private companies that make them as a, as a way of redistributing money into these industrial corporations. And Wolf is expressing here some real concern about the ability of America's armed forces to actually wage a war. And of course he is, because we're not winning the Vietnam War, and we're not going to win the Vietnam War. That is a shock to people at this time, because we won World War I, and we won World War II, and we are a big superpower. We have nuclear weapons, and we, and we can't defeat this one small nation, right? This is a real anxiety that people have. And Wolf is making a connection here between the two things, right? This move to establishing the military industrial congressional complex and our inability to actually win a war anymore. And I will say that, you know, we also know that Wolf loves the the classics, that he, he loves to read Greek and Roman histories. We've seen Livy already in some stories and, and not too far in the future here, he's going to write a whole bunch of Herodotus fan fiction. That's the, the soldier series that I'm really looking forward to covering. But we know also that Wolf loves to read the biographies of ancient people, right? This is a, a genre of writing in the ancient world. And we just happen to be preparing to do this story while also this week I'm having my Western civilization class read the biography of the Roman politician Tiberius Gracchus by a writer named Plutarch. Tiberius Gracchus is a Roman soldier who actually loses. He's on the losing side of a war for the first time in a long time. The Romans have lost a war and he goes home and he thinks long and hard about why they lost that war. And he thinks that it is because they are no longer able to recruit citizen soldiers. The reason they're not able to recruit citizen soldiers anymore and have to recruit different types of soldiers is that the owner class, the Roman senatorial class, have driven out all of the middle class farmers from Italy and replaced them with slaves. And and those middle class farmers were the citizens of the Roman Republic. They are the backbone of the Roman Republic and the backbone of the Roman army. And he really makes the same complaint that Wolf makes here, which is we have allowed greed, and this, this lust for profit, and the ability of those greedy people to control government policies. Those things are now crippling our ability to wage a war as well, in addition to whatever other social and economic consequences there might be. And I, I, there's a clear connection in my mind there, not just that they were going, I was reading them at the same time. Oh, that's really fascinating. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. And it makes me want to read uh, Roman biographies, which I've never done. So that's on my to read list now. <laughs> well, I've done enough of it for, for all of us. I think. Yeah. Um, well, now I kind of want to get into some of the, the bits and bobs of the story here. Uh, some loose ends that just appear in the story. First, uh, what's with the weird jewelry in the strange fashion Peters expects, you know, the revolutionary young men to wear of whom Treadgold seems to be at least uh, adapting some of these fashion statements of these modern dandies, the earrings, the phallic necklaces, the erotic jewelry. We get all these references to it. What do you think is going on here, particularly with Treadgold, but also with Peter's expectation to see other young men of his age who aren't employed wearing these sort of 
dandyish fashions. Well, like this is a pretty big deal about hippies in the 1960s is that they're wearing different clothes and not getting haircuts. This is ridiculous to us now. We live in a world now where there's no real uniform expectation of what a person's hair is going to look like. If you want to have long hair, you can have long hair. If you're bald, you're bald. If you want a beard, have a if you want to have a beard, cool. If not, also cool. E- even I, I don't even know when the last time I talked to anyone who worked someplace that had like a no visible tattoos policy. Right? We are so far removed from this world that it's hard to even remember what that world was like. But this was a big part of the opposition to hippies. It was also a big part of what hippies were doing to express their opposition to the the dominant culture. But I think there's something really interesting that Wolf is doing here, right? Because he is giving us actually some pretty outlandish accoutrements to these characters, right? The hieroglyphs on the broadcaster's forehead. And yeah, Treadgold is wearing jewelry that's phallic, explicitly phallic. He's just wearing genitals as jewelry, basically. All the other characters, presumably, we don't really ever get what's told what they're wearing. So presumably, they're just wearing suits, business suits, right? But Wolf is showing us that the good people and competent people are not wearing this uniform, right? So I think that Wolf here in this story is looking with some derision at the way that other people in the early 1970s were looking at the, the, the fashions of, of young people and complaining about it. I think this is Wolf here saying that's not really what the issue is. Like, what, like, could we maybe talk about something substantive? Right. right. Let's talk about something serious here. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. As we know, Wolf has been reading Proust and, uh, you know, maybe he's finished his read through, but he's still got some of it on his mind. And a big part of that is just the fashion of the aristocrats or or especially the dandies and the fops and things like that. So I think that's a piece of what's going on here is is also just emphasizing that sort of armchair leadership where people are far removed from what's going on and only doing what's going to benefit them. Uh, we, We were told that Peters is surprised to see that the revolutionaries aren't wearing any of these jewelries and, and necklaces and things like that. Um, but like he's trained to look at their fashion as, as a way to judge them. But Treadgold, who is kind of on the inner circle, is playing this part of the fringe character who is 100% invested in ensuring no matter what happens, he is going to have some sort of financial success. So I think Wolf is looking at the way we've used these symbols in the 1970s to identify what people are like or who they are, and that these symbols are being used now by the corporate class on some level in order to get people to buy stuff or to think working is cool or whatever it is, that there's now crossover between business using advertisement, for instance, and and appropriating these images to sell whatever to its audience. And that these symbols have lost their value as symbols of the counterculture, which is why the counterculture is no longer wearing them. But these people on the edges of business are. Uh, I think it's kind of a, a great point that Wolf is making here about the shifting nature of symbols. You know, also the phallic necklace here really reminded me of the autark in <laughs> in uh, Book of the New Sun. So I think I think there's a lot that's on Wolf's mind here that that shows up later in his work. I don't know how much Wolf is really thinking about the the clothing and the the jewelry, the sort of accoutrements of these characters as being about creativity or innovation. I think we tend to maybe think about those things in those terms. But this is an issue that Wolf brings up, right? At the end, Cleo Morris is saying that we used to think that being a good business person had to do with innovation and creativity and, and, and guts, but it it doesn't have anything to do with that anymore. In fact, it just requires being an office drone who doesn't get bored looking at spreadsheets. And, you know, when we were talking before about cyberpunk and the the 1990s that Wolf envisions here, or really maybe just the future that Wolf envisions here, I think there are a lot of parallels. And our world, in a lot of ways, is perhaps the nightmare vision, or at least uh, some part of the nightmare vision that Wolf has invented here. But I do want to say that, that I think Wolf did not perhaps foresee the digital revolution, even though we have digital technology in this story, where, in fact, our business culture or our corporate culture very much is all about innovation and creativity. These are the buzzwords, actually, of our corporate cultures and our marketing slogans now, where 
companies aren't just doing R&D to motivate their sales forces. They actually are doing R&D to come up with new products because all of our economy seems to be driven by selling smartphones, right? And other types of technology to people. Now, that's really where the economy has gone. Wolf is still thinking about this, perhaps in terms of the production of manufacturing equipment and automobiles and, well, pulp farms in Georgia, I suppose. And so I think that's actually one place where Wolf has been really critical of business culture and especially of the type of business culture being taught at the Harvard School of Business that I don't think actually works out in our world. I think there's actually a lot of creativity and innovation within these corporations today. I would say that there's certainly buzzwords within these corporations and there is a constant need to produce something new that looks creative or innovative, but that's really all a smokescreen for the same type of business that still takes place that Wolf is criticizing in this story, I think. I'd actually like to talk a little bit about whether or not there's any hope in this story. This is a bleak story, but is there any kind of hope here in this story? I really don't think so. Like I said in in one of our recap episodes, this is Wolf's, I think, bitterest story that we've read so far. He is really on a tear, and the refrain of nobody did anything and we could maybe stop it just before it gets a little bit further. If we just tried a little now, it wouldn't be so bad, but like it's already really bad and people haven't tried or haven't been trying. And I think that Wolf doesn't see a lot of hope here. I think that's maybe why Peters goes to look at the history of the last 30 years. I don't know, Glenn, what is your thought? I actually think there is some hope, some optimism in this story, and, and there maybe are two two places where I see it. And I'll start maybe with the more obvious one, which is that Cleo here, she is the muse of history, and she also becomes a martyr against the evils that Wolf has in this story. So I think that is actually meant to be kind of an optimistic ending, because what he's suggesting is that the trajectory here, right, if we think of history in teleological terms— I don't condone that, but people think about it this way. I think Wolf probably does here in this case, that if we think of history as this kind of progression, that what he's saying here is that history is on the side of the counterculture movement. I'm not sure that that has actually turned out to be true, but I think that for Wolf in this story, he is expressing some some optimism there. And frankly, he is issuing a call to action here as well, right? And I don't think you do that if you think that's utterly futile, right? He's got to think there's some chance there, right? When he is asking his readers to think about what changes they would like to see and to actually take that into their own hands, to not be hoping that people who do not have their interests in mind will suddenly decide to have their interests in mind. That's that's one of the places where I see some optimism. Certainly, I think Wolf is having Cleo die in this way at the end of the story as a turning point in history, or it could be the bleakest thing in the world where there is no history anymore. And there's no, like this is, this is a a starting over point because things are certainly not good. It's going to take a lot of work for the people who inhabit the world of this story to reorganize, to turn things around, to reconstitute the nation. Right. Cleo exploding here at the end does raise the question, right? The muse of history has just exploded here. So this, restates in this image the question that we get at the Library of Congress, which is, is this the beginning or is this the end? And I think that is the question that Wolf is asking here. And I love the image that we get when those lines actually appear in the story, this frozen image of an astronaut. And I think the question is meant to be a caption over that image, right? Is getting to the moon, which we just did, you know, in the in Wolf's timeline here, is that the end? Is that going to be like the last great thing that humanity does? Or is that the beginning? Are we going to get past this moment? Are we going to fight these impulses, this this move to a new type of serfdom in the hands of mega corporations? Or are we going to become this spacefaring civilization, right? Are we going to have a new frontier, right? Which is a thing that for Americans is a, is a big deal about freedom and innovation and creativity and guts, all of the positive traits that Wolf has in this story, all of the traits that he praises in this story. And I think that's that's the question, right? But there's optimism there, right? He's saying, we have gone to the moon. We can fix this, right? Surely. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. And Wolf does actually call back to the frontier where free market capitalism worked and people were good to each other and had to cooperate and work together. And it was not just every man for himself. And he he is in this story also referring to that imagery of the frontier of pushing the boundaries of innovating, of making something new and better for more people. And I want this story to be hopeful. To me, it just reads a little raw, like Wolf is just raw when he's writing this story. He's got a lot on his mind. I think we just have one more question here that we are going to close out on, and it's this. Why is this story called Hour of Trust? So my simple answer is, I have no idea. This is not a phrase that I know from any other work of, of literature. I'm, I'm hoping you've got something. I really don't. I tried to dig up something, some reason why this story is called Hour of Trust. This, this story doesn't take place over the course of an hour. It's, it could be from a political speech, I suppose. It sounds like it is, maybe. But I, I just don't know what... Wolf is referring to here in this title. And I think I'd love to hear from our listeners if they know what this reference is, because it, it's eluded me so far. Yeah, I think there's a lot that we'd love to hear from our listeners about in this story. On the forums in the past, we've learned an awful lot about what was going on in this world of the late 60s and early 1970s when Wolf is writing these highly political stories. And I'm, I'm hoping that we can get more light shed on everything that we've touched on here in this episode and even beyond that. Yeah, I can't wait to to hear listener response to this story. But on that note, I think it's time to to call it a night. That's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Please come to the forums uh, for this story and let us know what you thought of our discussion of Hour of Trust and absolutely fill in the blanks for us. I'd love to hear from you. Next time, we're going to be back a week early with a bonus episode as part of our celebration for reaching our very first crowdfunding goal on Patreon last year. And that's going to be the Ursula K. Le Guin story, Winter's King. This one was awesome. We've actually been sitting on it for quite a while because we didn't want to interrupt our fifth head coverage. So I'm excited to finally release this one into the wild. I absolutely love this story. And it surprised me because it's part of the same world that The Left Hand of Darkness takes place in, which I read about... Uh, decade ago and didn't love, but I loved this story. And I'm going to go revisit Left Hand of Darkness and a bunch of Le Guin's other writing as well. I, I can't recommend this story enough for people who are on the fence about her or who maybe read her in the past and didn't like her. This story is incredible. Yeah, I think we had very much the, the same journey with Le Guin's work here. And after that episode, we'll be back with our regularly scheduled episode, and this one's going to be on Wolf's great Christmas story, La Bafana, and we're very excited to have a special guest join us on that episode. But until next time, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>